Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. Welcome back to Hanging with History. Season 1, That Miracle That Happened. That one time. Episode 12, The Black Death and Wycliffe. Wow, 12 episodes. That's a big deal. That's a long 10 in the Old Norse way to put things. When I first sketched out the outline of this podcast in January 2020, I told myself we could skip over the High Middle Ages and jump straight from the Vikings to the Reformation and Dutch history. These were the keys to the miracle that happened that one time. And yet, the Reformation doesn't make sense without understanding anti-clericalism in England and the brilliant, glittering, persuasive thoughts that led to it. And we have to touch on church land confiscation a bit more deeply. Otherwise, the Reformation in England seems too much like some guy's flailing attempts to organize his family life, not to mention his sex life. And it definitely wasn't that, only. It made total logical sense to everyone involved and flowed from past events. So I was wrong about that. And we have to touch on the Black Death and its surprising consequences. The economic explanation for many of the whys of the development of the English economy and the English-Dutch joint commercial growth and technological progress doesn't stand on its own without this. Also, there are neat touches of why Britain is so special in both of these stories. At some point, I think we'll have to squeeze an episode or two about how self-conscious England was about being special. I hope you got the idea that the I got rights man notion from the last episode was more fully formed in England than in any other place. But how self-aware were the English about this? Sounds like you were just wrong about the Middle Ages. Yeah, sorry about that. What else were you wrong about? Lots of things. Do you want a list? Since we know you were wrong in the past, how can we ever trust that you're correct now? Everyone's been wrong. That's a weak defense. Everyone else is doing it. Hi, Dragon Slayer. I'm glad to have you back on the program. Dragon Slayer is a very bright and skeptical young mind. You have to decide for yourself who to trust. You read sources, weigh claims, look at the evidence. Strong claims require strong evidence. You have priors, and you update them as more evidence comes your way. Priors? What are you talking about? Bayesian reasoning. Trying to think like a human as opposed to a monkey. Also, you have cognitive biases. Knight Rider really got into those, as did Arctic Acoustic. Maybe we do some of that season two. For now, I'd suggest visiting the Less Wrong website and Slate Star Codex for knowledge about Bayesian reasoning and hints on where to go about cognitive biases. To risk a terrible in-joke, go read the sequences. The Elephant in the Brain is another recommendation. Okay, so back to the Middle Ages. The Knights Templar came out of the Crusades without a temple, but they were very rich. And remember that papal supremacy movement we ran into last episode with King John? The one that, technically speaking, really was an international conspiracy? Well, it ran into the buzzsaw of French politics, led to French control over the papacy. With the usual greed of French kings, we get a papal order in 1308 to confiscate the wealth of the Knights Templar and give the wealth to the Knights of St. John and try the Templars for heresy and moral depravity. The medieval climate optimum is ending, crop yields falling, people all over are scrambling. The papal order comes to England and you get a real sense that the English are out of touch with the continent. 
a storm of moral outrage is unleashed. Outrage on behalf of the Templars? Oh, no. People could care less about the Templars. Religious houses didn't have a great reputation at this time, and it would just get worse. No, what people were upset about is that the Templars, being basically innocent of the charges, could only be convicted if they confessed. Why should innocent people confess to crimes? This is the Middle Ages, so everyone understands that torture is the way to get innocent men to confess. The Pope is basically telling them to torture the Templars, get them to confess, and then the land will be seized, and so on. All over Europe, they tortured the Templars, the Templars confessed, but this was England, and we don't do things like that here. Why, we don't employ professional torturers at all. You can't even find an Englishman who'd be willing to torture. That's the sort of thing they do on the continent. <laughs> Here in England, it just isn't done. It's not something we would sink to. That really was the sort of thing people were saying and writing to each other at the time. Was it hypocrisy? Sure. But what do we say about hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is the homage vice pays to virtue. Thank you. Anyway, protests were made, the trials proceeded, confessions were made. But we don't know how they were obtained or why they were made. The land was seized and the wealth of the Templars was turned over to the church, according to the Pope's instructions. No, not really. <laughs> oh, that would be a different kind of world. There, this was a lot of money. The crown kept the wealth. The land, the money, what would you think would happen? The Pope was ignored and there was much rejoicing. Seriously, though, a precedent was set. This all happened very publicly, and people remembered it. Now, kings were used to seizing a little church land now and again, when they needed ready cash or had debts to settle. Even Alfred the Great, a strong supporter of the church, resorted to seizing church land now and again. I mean, the church had 20 to 25 percent of the valuable land, and no fighting men. So it was a temptation kings could not resist though it could create trouble, as it did for John. So, two consequences. A large-scale land confiscation from the church, and another idea that the English were just too good for the evil that goes on everywhere else. By the way, torture remained illegal and was disdained. Popular culture, to the contrary, is just wrong about this. It was used occasionally... There would be sophisticated reformers returning from a visit to Renaissance Italy or somewhere, and they would use it in English government. They were always hated and usually ended up prematurely deceased. Britain is special. The Crown also did something pretty stupid in the 1290s. A major example of stupidity smart people commit was the expulsion of the Jews. Jews were expelled from Britain? I thought that was Spain. I know, it sounds like Spain. Spain was super rich and super successful, a strong and wealthy middle class, driving a dynamic commercial economy which made Spain the leading power in Europe. But a crown interested mainly in its own power took many measures to cripple its own middle class, leading Spain into a long decline that ended up with Spain becoming France's bitch, ah, lapdog. But we were talking about Britain in the 1290s, a mainly agrarian economy. And farmers often need credit because of the seasonal nature of their cash flows. And everyone knows this, and did at the time. Farmers and their need for credit drove a lot of politics in U.S. history and elsewhere in the 19th century, by the way. So the British crown expels the main source of credit without providing an adequate native alternative. 
It's evil, and it's staggeringly irresponsible. Historians will say that the reform of English agriculture is held back a hundred years by this move. And it's easy to believe, because whenever banks have a problem, the whole economy has a problem today. Much as bankers might be hated, they are vital. Eventually, Italian bankers fill this role. So the British would hate Italians, eventually, nearly as much as they hated the French. Though hating Italians takes work. There would be anti-Italian riots and violence contributing to the eventual Reformation. Hating Italians takes work. Does that mean that you're saying hating the French is easy? For the English? Very easy. First of all, they're almost the same as the English, and that helps make people easier to hate. Emmanuel Todd has this table of nations in the beginning of Lineages of Modernity, uh, which I've mentioned before, where he shows how different from the Anglophone culture the other cultures in various parts of the world are anthropologically. The French of the Paris Basin are basically only half a point different from the English, with the only notable difference being that the French are egalitarian within families, whereas the English are neither egalitarian nor unegalitarian. Otherwise, they're the same. They could understand each other easily, so they fell into hate. It's an old story, repeated over and over. Also, you had the Hundred Years' War. I mean, proverbially, you had the English feeling the French hated them. So you get a near-outgroup phenomenon going on. The English and the French hating each other? What is this episode about? I'm all over the place, because I'm avoiding the topic for half the podcast. Which is? The Black Death. I mean, I'm writing this in April 2020 during the coronavirus lockdown. The Black Death. It doesn't feel right to get into the Black Death. That's history. Don't get the two things confused. Right. It hits England in 1348, after a few famines. The Black Death comes along in three waves. It kills something like a third to a half of the people on the island. The higher estimates are better supported by the actual evidence we have. The second wave in 1361 was really bad because it killed so many children. Some areas were thoroughly devastated, like post-apocalyptic horror movie. There's a story from Norway about a man visiting a small town and finding not a single person left alive except for a small girl. But England is an agricultural society before the agricultural revolution, and the miracle is 400 years in the future. So the aftermath of the Black Death, well, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad in England once the tears dried. Malthusian limits were put very far off now. Wages rose 30% immediately and grew to 60% higher in the next decade. Labor-saving devices like the scythe, as opposed to the sickle, and the butter churn became common at this time. Landlords tried to regulate wages and force men back to work for them. And laws are passed, but these couldn't be enforced, and they really pissed people off whenever it was tried. So here we approach the problem of evil again. The church tried to rely on these legalisms more than other landlords. That's right, the church tried to force people to work for them more than anyone else, and the result was a fresh burst of English anti-clericalism. There were riots. The riots were put down, but far less violently than on the continent. On the continent, the results for common people were very different. There, severe serfdom was reintroduced which was to endure until the French Revolution and Napoleonic period. The miracle is not going to happen in that environment. The problem of evil is that evil often wins in history, and mostly did after the Black Death, but not everywhere. 
Not in England. So here's the point of bringing up the plague. In England, serfdom was pretty much dead, as opposed to on the continent where it gets fresh life. In England, society could advance from a new basis. On the land, old-fashioned feudal tenancy just dried up to be replaced by tenancy for a money rent. So that's a big difference. Now you rent your land for a specific set price, probably for generations, instead of having an obligation to work the feudal lord's land. And if the lord of the manor wants someone to work his land, he's got to pay people. And he's paying 60% more now than he paid for wage labor in the past. So now people were free. That overstates it. Because the working through of new rights against the claims of traditional rights and obligations took many decades to work through. But this would lead to a new economic relation between people and great lords. There was less dependence, more independence, and higher wages along with more risk when there was no work. As everything moved to a money basis, freedom increased dramatically. When the lord of the manor allocates housing plots and most of the paid work, you have to kiss ass big time. You have to be servile. And that oversimplifies a little bit, but it ought to be easy to understand how dependent a serf tied to the land, like a third of a slave, as Knight Rider memorably put it, when the option of just leaving to work on another farm, and many farms were abandoned after the Black Death, or in a town, well, lords need to start treating tenant farmers better, and tenant farmers need to treat their laborers better. Wow. That's the end of one-third slavery and two treat-betters. But remember, it didn't have to be that way. On the continent, they just screwed down harder, killed more, whipped more. Surf still ran away to the cities, but it was running away. It wasn't just, bye, I'm sick of how you treat me, bye. And intellectually, a new path was laid. A new foundation dug. Tracks into the future were laid. Whatever metaphor you want to use, a man named John Wycliffe started writing about a future free of Roman tyranny, of English supremacy, the end of idolatry, the corruption of the church as an institution, the confiscation of church property, and a translation of the Bible into English. This isn't just about religion. This is the road laid out by historians, anthropologists, philosophers, and others that led to tolerance, mass literacy, mass education, free institutions, and the future. We started talking about this in prior episodes, and here it is, getting untracked as the last wave of the Black Death passes through. Its intellectual underpinnings were created by Wycliffe, following Occam. The Pope and the higher prelates tried putting an end to Wycliffe and the movement he inspired called Lollardy. For a long time, Wycliffe was safe because he was considered amongst the greatest scholars of his time. He wrote De Logica, for example. He was greatly admired for his mind. It was a good time for the poorer clergy, supporting Wycliffe against the higher ecclesiastical powers. He had a powerful protector in John of Gaunt. He leveled powerful charges against the higher church authorities. He criticized their tendency to monopolize high offices and gather incomes instead of souls. In an echo of Pelagius, he argued that Rome, because of earthly corruption, had no more power of grace than anyone else. So why listen to them? So why listen to them? So why listen to them? 
and here he hit the church where it was weak. This was scary stuff because many suspected it was true. Did you ever get criticized by someone you care about? And deep inside, you know there's a lot of truth in it? Ah, that's the worst. And during the Black Death, while many local churchmen worked and ministered to the sick, there were large numbers of religious officials, especially in the southeast, that lived off the church but did not actually minister to the people. These people got all the benefits of clergy without any of the obligations to serve. People noticed they were parasites and resented it. Wycliffe was very convincing to a lot of people, but then he went too far in arguing against consubstantiation, which is about the balance between symbol and reality in the wine and bread part of the Mass. It's a very intellectual argument, and when we read about this part now, it seems a silly thing to worry about, but Wycliffe couldn't let it go. It was too soon. People were emotionally attached to the mystery and couldn't hear reason. He lost his powerful supporters, and the prelates, the bishops, well, they didn't lose their nerve. They got busy burning heretics, and Lollardy had to go underground. Though Lollardy had staying power as an underground movement, until the Reformation made it safe to come out. It remained popular with certain people, uh, artisans like weavers, smiths, wheelwrights, carpenters. So in addition to creating a long, enduring, important group of people who were ready to resist Rome, and the whole package that goes with that idea, two other important developments flowed from Wycliffe, the English Bible and Lollardy complex of events. First in England, because of the divisions in the church created here, and the need for violence, murder, and burning to assert orthodoxy against people like Wycliffe and the Lollards, the crown became the guardian of orthodoxy. And it proved to be a short step from guarding orthodoxy to deciding, conveniently, what orthodoxy was. It's only the 14th century, but I can practically see Henry VIII's vast bulk from here. Second, Wycliffe wasn't sui generis. He drew on William of Ockham, the guy we mostly know from Ockham's Razor. That the aftermath of the Black Death gave Wycliffe time and space to develop good arguments, really good logical arguments that others shared, underground, and popped up in a very out-in-the-open war inspired by Jan Hus in Bohemia a few decades later. One key idea was that the church was not an institution, but the entire body of the elect, meaning those predestined to be saved. This is a mind-blowing, stimulation-to-thinking kind of idea that tickles the higher human and monkey parts of the brain simultaneously. I invite you to spend some time with this idea and feel how liberating it is. Or don't. You've already been freed by it either way. We should have a Wycliffe Appreciation Day. Jan Hus credited Wycliffe for informing his thinking this way, and of course Hus was a key inspiration for Martin Luther, and Martin Luther, well, Martin Luther, paradox and contradiction. His here I stand, I can do no other moment is one of mankind's great inspirational moments. He also kicked off a train of horror in Germany and got the popes to pay attention to ideology, which they'd been ignoring until the 1550s. The Counter-Reformation was another horror. But for us, on the podcast, the 95 Theses he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517 was 25 years before the English Reformation, 
and ideas about a predestined elect led to Calvin and the fiery energy of the Dutch republics. Those two things, the English Reformation and Calvinism in a few Dutch provinces, were indispensable to the miracle. So, Dragon Slayer, I think your questioning earlier was well-timed. I've just laid out one of the most consequential intellectual chains of influence the world has ever experienced. I hope you can consider it. Welcome to Wivcliffe, Wivcliffe to Huss, Huss to Luther, freedom, liberation, horror. Well, I'll think about it. Excellent. You know, it's funny. What's funny? Uh, Wycliffe. You run into him in history over and over, but I ignored him. Though he stood in the background of hundreds of books I read. The greatest philosopher of the 14th century, everyone says, and yet greatest philosopher of the 14th century sounds like damning with faint praise, almost like waving a flag going, come over here, it's really boring, and not at all intriguing, and so I never felt like cracking open a book to understand him before. Prejudice leads us astray, I guess. With that admission, next week we can leave the Middle Ages behind and start creeping closer to our subject. But first, conversations with Cammie. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> Cami, you've had a chance to listen to episode 12, The Black Death and Wycliffe. What'd you think? I think of John Wycliffe as a radical at the time. Okay. But the whole idea of the getting the Bible into English helped people to think for themselves. They could read it for themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, instead of relying on the interpretations by the priests that yeah. were being given <clears throat> to them. They could study at their leisure instead of just listening to sermons or mm -hmm. whatever. And then the whole idea of the body and blood of Christ at communion, and whether or not it was the true body and blood Oh, okay, of that's a complicated thing. I don't know if we want to touch on that it here. It is, but it is a fundamental thing in many, in many church practices, Sure. whether or not they agree. Or not. Some some churches still believe in the body and blood of Christ at communion, and some believe it's a symbol. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, what's so complicated though is everyone I think now believes it in some mix of reality and symbol. Yeah, probably. I would I would say that's probably the case. But there was definitely a great change in the way people thought of the sacraments. Yeah, that's how they got him. That's how they got. Well, they never actually burned him. He suffered professionally and then died. A lot of his followers were caught and burned and for over 150 years. Well, it seems to me you could probably do several episodes just on John Wycliffe and how his thinking changed modern day religion and politics and work standards and things like that. The one idea I think that would be interesting to really pursue is the idea of the church being the body of, of the believers or the elect if you will but yeah that one stuck out that, to me too that they're the people not the institution right and once you don't have to have the institution of the church as something that is governing you I mean there has to be another basis for how you're going to live whether it be so how are we going to live whether it be your morals, the laws of the land. Yeah, it used to be what the church mama told, told you, you how was to live. good. <laughs> now it's well, actually the church is us, so we have to tell ourselves how to live. 
So that's the logic. That's where the freedom comes in. That's also where the difficulty and the responsibility comes in. Exactly. I mean, you said something a minute ago about Wycliffe being a radical, and of course, you know, he was a radical, but he also looked towards the past, towards kind of an idealized uh, past. It was much more convincing if they could look back to the past, to something that was, and say they were trying to get back to that. Arguing for a glittering future that had never been was something people just had no reason to believe in. It's a very different way of thinking uh, than people have today. There would be something that we would call radical vis-a-vis the, the situation that they had, but usually their actual words and appeals were uh, to the past, toward past rights, towards past situations. That's how people thought, instead of thinking, hey, let's imagine a glittering future. Okay. Well, you know, I think if you uh, referred more to John Wycliffe and Calvin, people like that as radicals, maybe people would be more interested in hearing about them. I don't know. Just oh, you a think thought. that'd be good PR? It might be. It's how you spin it, right? Oh, uh-huh. God. Aren't we sick of spin, though? Absolutely. I but, think we're sick yeah. of spin. Just saying. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Look.